fundamentally, that's what real estate is actually about. Changing generational wealth for people, changing perspective on what we deserve or what belongs to us. And I'm proud to be a part of that. My name is Michael Conrad, and I'm excited once again to share the stories, the entrepreneurship, um, and the practice of the business behind real estate and all things home. This is the Business of Homes podcast, and today we are very fortunate to have someone who has seen just a little bit of pretty much everything, if not a lot of bit of everything, over the last 15 years of being in business. He has touched almost every aspect of the world of homes. And I think in a lot of ways, he sort of exemplifies, I think what this podcast is about, and that is the home is the central location that gives so many of us not only personal life, but business life. And behind the home is a great deal of complexity and a great deal of business. And in that business, we find wonderful stories. And today, Nathan Weinberg is sitting with us and sharing just amazing little factoids of what he's picked up along the way. And you don't get there by uh, failing continually for 15 years, but you definitely don't get there by succeeding steadily for 15 years. And Nathan's unique story, of course, is that he hasn't even stayed in one spot. He's transitioned into multiple areas, and I'm excited to talk about some of those today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, buddy. Thanks for being here. Before we got on, we were sort of trading stories about who owns this building and that piece of land and you know who's seen what. And I think both of us were remarking that if you're around long enough, and I moved to Nashville 15 years ago, got into business about 12, you started in business here 15 years ago. And so much of what Nashville now identifies as, self-identifies as, particularly in the way we sell and develop real estate, has changed so dramatically in 15 years. And you said, what, what was it you were saying? You, you weren't uh, getting into business on the way down in the Great Recession, but right there in the bottom. Yeah, all of the, well, I think a lot of people had to deal with the suck mm. that I didn't have to deal with. I had to deal with the loneliness, right? Everybody had been party to the downfall of 2006 and 2007 really terrible, terrible experiences where people lost their homes, their businesses. Um, banks were simultaneously the, 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 the saviors and the, the causes of the, the Great Recession, and people didn't really know how, how or what to do with that. And so when I started, it was like a battlefield that had just finished, mm. and it was quiet you couldn't sell anything. The buyers that were out there weren't in a hurry to do anything. Um, and it required of me to be just a little bit naive in the right way um, and think about things a little bit differently. When I started, I remember I got my real estate, I convinced my, my new wife at the time. It was, we had been married for six months when we moved here. Um, and she got a promotion that brought us to Nashville. And I said, okay, we've been married for six months, but I don't want to do what I'm doing anymore. I want to try real estate. And I think she, honest to God, audibly chuckled. Um, 
And I said, you just have to give me a chance. I, I, if I can't sell a house in a year, then I'll, I'll, if I want to keep doing it, I'll, I'll find a way to fund it myself. Set the bar kind of low there. One I did, house in a year. <laughs> but I, I knew that if I could do that, that was, that, was, that, that was the hill, right? It wasn't a mountain. It was a hill. If I could do that psychologically, it meant that I could do it over and over again. But it also was just, it was a demonstration of my ability to do something that I had no fundamental knowledge of at all. And she said, sure. And so we moved here. And I remember being um, in Whit Clark's office at Frederick and Clark Realty. Um, and everybody's got their Whit Clark impression. And mine is terrible. So I won't, I'll spare it to you right now. Um, but Whit said, um, why in the world are you doing this right now? <laughs> I, I mean, I, and it was, it, it was an honest question. He wanted to understand why I was crazy enough to decide to get into real estate at that moment. I said, Wit, I walked into your office today and I watched three people walk out with bankers boxes. I said, my competition walked out the door. I can't think of a better time to start practicing real estate than when there's less people for me to compete with. And he, I think he, think he said, hmm, and like sent me to a cubicle. Um, Good luck over there in right. the corner. And as it turns out, he sent me to a cubicle that was... 20 feet from Steve Frederick's office. Um, Steve Frederick is now the titan of real estate in Nashville. Steve Frederick has sold on his own something close to $2 billion of real estate in his career. That's billion with a B. B, yeah. Um, and nobody competes with Steve Frederick in areas like Belmede and Hillwood and whatnot. It's just, you call him and he decides if he's going to work with you or not. And I knew his dad, his dad had an office there. His dad's name was Jerry. Um, Jerry was this giant. He was six foot six. He had played basketball at Vanderbilt. Um, he was a wonderful man. He was mostly deaf, but he didn't want to say so. So he'd come into his office and he'd turn the golf channel on. And he'd listen to golf, but and golf is a quiet sport. But my God, you couldn't hear anything in that office because he had it turned up so loudly. Um, it was just deafening the golf channel. Um, and then his brother Chip owned the insurance company upstairs. And I just would listen to him, I'd listen to Steve talk on the phone. I didn't have any clients, I didn't have anything to do. <laughs> I could read the business journal at my desk. I could and I'll tell you about it in a second, I could come up with ideas on how to prospect and I could listen to Steve Frederick talk on the phone. And I tried really consciously to make sure that I had one or two things I needed to ask him every day. So I'd find excuses to go into his office and I just listened to him talk and I made friends with his assistants. Um, they would give me his open houses to do. So this 25 year old kid was doing million dollar open houses back in 2008, 2009. Um, I don't know that I was really qualified, but it meant that I had to learn quick how to code switch. I needed to, I needed to be something that people like Steve would be willing to talk to. And so I remember I did an open house for him once and I ended up having a conversation with this lovely couple. They were in the house for maybe 20 or 30 minutes. I talked to them both for a long time. And then they left and I finished that open house for the day. I cleaned up, I went home. And about a week later, I got a note, a postcard in the mail, handwritten. Um, and I read through it. 
Um, and it was from Bob Freeman. And he and his wife had been in the open house and they had talked to me and he found me and sent me a handwritten note. And I, I knew who that was. I had been here hardly enough time to really take a deep breath, but I knew who that was. And it, it meant that I had made an impression on the right kind of people. I was doing something right. It was encouraging to keep doing. I didn't know a soul, didn't know a human being in Nashville, um, which is, I mean, the, the, the cards being stacked against me were just remarkable. I didn't know a soul. And so I had to come up way, with ways to, to create a sphere of influence, to create a book of business. And so I thought long and hard about it. And I knew I could do open houses twice a weekend. Great. I'll meet people there. Um, but I needed something to do during the weeks. Right. I couldn't just sit there quietly and bother <laughs> minor, minor detail. Right. Couldn't bother Steve Frederick every 20 minutes. Um, and so at the time I thought, OK, what's different? What's somebody not doing? People are discounting everyone that is renting. They just don't think that they're valuable clients. And I didn't think I, I thought everyone was valuable to me. If I could make one hundred dollars, it sounded great at that moment. Um, so I went on Craigslist. And I started looking for people that were searching for rentals. So I'm looking for a room to rent for, and they always put how much in the, in the subject line. I'm looking for a room to rent for $800, or I'm looking for a room to rent for $1,300. And the beauty of that was that I could back that number into the value of a home. You could reverse engineer what a mortgage payment right. could be. And so I would email them. And if I emailed 1,000 people, five of them would reply to me. But I'd email them and say, did you like, I, I don't know if you ever thought about it, but, you know, for that payment, you could buy a house and here's how much house you could buy. So, I mean, somebody that said they wanted a $1,200 a month rental at the time said, you know, you can afford 250,000 bucks. I say that's a lot of house back then. Yeah. And I, my very first lead came from it. Um, name was Dina Little. I'll never forget her. Um, she was looking for a rental in Dixon. She wanted to rent a trailer. Classic. And she wanted to rent a trailer because that is the only kind of housing anyone in her family had ever owned. Ever. If they owned it at all. I, I'm not even sure they owned it at all. But that's what she knew. that That's the kind of house that she was allowed to have, right? Psychologically, she was allowed to have a trailer. And I remember going and looking at houses in Dixon. Um, and you'd show up and the signs would have bullet holes in them. And I mean, it was, I mean, it was such a, it was awful. And I, I, I was going to, I was showing her these rentals. Um, and finally I said, Dina, let's, can, can we try, can we try to get you qualified to buy a house? Let's just see. It's the worst thing that could happen. And she said, sure. And sure enough, of course, we got her qualified to buy something. I, th I think it was like she couldn't afford to buy more than $100,000, right? Yeah, that's two houses in Dixon in 2008. But in addition to that, I knew that Dixon wasn't really where she wanted to live. It's where she thought she belonged. Um, and I said, I'll happily look for houses in Dixon for you all day long. But let's look other places, too. Sure enough. So we started looking and we found her a house. And it still makes me laugh. It was $78,000. It was on a corner. And one side of the property lined up with the railroad tracks and a railroad crossing right here. 
the where it blew its horn and the gates came down and whatnot. And across the street was a liquor store. I mean, it was just if you were writing a book about what kind of real estate not to buy, <laughs> it was exactly what you don't buy. But it was the and she told me this. It was the first time anyone in her family had ever owned a home, a mm. home. Mm. And watching them light up, she and her partner light up when they bought that house. Um, I'll never forget it. It kept me going. It has kept me going to date. I'll never forget them. She is an accountant in downtown Nashville now for a big company. Um, and we don't talk, but because she'll never sell that house. She'll never leave it. They'll take her out of there in a box because it's so important to her. Mm. But what that did is it it put a marker in the sand so that when they do take her out of there in a box someday, that will have built wealth for her family that her family has never experienced before. Mm -hmm. And had she not done that, they would be perpetually stuck in this class system that's broken. And she's changing that for them. She doesn't know it. She'll never know it, right? But her family will. And that's a big deal. And I think fundamentally, that's what real estate is actually about. It's about changing generational wealth for people. It's about changing perspective on what we deserve or what belongs to us. Um, and I'm proud to be a part of that. And I think that if we think about real tours, our job is not to help people find houses. It's a component of what we do. But our job is actually to help people build wealth. We are wealth builders. And I'm not the only person to say that. I'm not some clairvoyant who's come up with that concept. Lots of people have said that. But I think fundamentally our job is to help people build wealth. So the questions that we ask people about what kind of houses they, they want to buy, what are things that are important to them, it's important because it means that we can shorten the period of time we're doing this search for them. But the questions we should be asking fundamentally are, how long do you want to live here? Where do you want to live next? What do you want the money in this house to do for you? Do you does it create a savings account for you? Does it create a, a, a leverage step for you to buy something bigger and badder later? Um, what is that for? And ultimately, do you have aspirations to invest in real estate as well? Because I do believe that fundamentally it is, and historically, it remains the single best, safest investment that anybody can make. Well, so now hold on. You are accidentally differentiating between a concept of home ownership for me and home ownership that I invest in, in theories that someone else might live in. That's right. When in reality, I think you could easily agree that all home ownership is investment. Yes, it is. Absolutely. All home ownership is investment. And let, let's ignore the categorically sort of up and to the right nature of real estate, despite its big sort of, you know, bite out of it in 08. You know, it's been up and to the right for freaking forever. But let's say just ignore that concept of its charts up and to the right. And let's go back to hedge against fill in the blank, hedge against catastrophe, apocalypse, danger, you know, financial difficulties, personally, a hedge against concept, uh, you know, your story of, of this person who had, you know, categorically been impoverished and in a cycle of poverty, both mentally and 
you know, monetarily, and you're breaking out of that. And, you know, a mobile home, a manufactured home gets blown away in a tornado and a, and a regular house maybe has a chance to survive. I mean, a, you might get bad leaks in a manufactured home because there's more seams, whereas a home that is, you know, a permanent home is manufactured to withstand the elements. And so there's this hedge against concept. And so if we start to use hedge against language, we're right back in investment. All of it is investment. And I, you know, my, I married, um, you know, someone whose parents had a home that probably changed $15,000 in value over 20 years because it was in a small town in a rural location. And so that is still investment by another respect because ownership is place for family. It's not just sort of metaphysical identity, but it's again, hedge against. And so I think all ownership of real estate really is investment. And if you talk to investors, not your run of the mill real estate agent today, but if you talk to someone say, who's an investor, or maybe even like a certified financial planner type person, you're going to start to get into this operative sense of money working. And I always sort of imagine this little like wad of bills that's like shoveling something, but like, think of your money working. How does your money work for you? That's the language of a financial, you know, advisor or an investor. And it was new to me. I wasn't given that language growing up that money works for you. Money is what you use to trade for things, whether it's enjoyment or whether it's food uh, or even shelter. And so money working for you is the thing we think about stock portfolios and brokerage accounts and bonds and these sorts of things and, and rise of value. But the truth is money has to work for us in investments. If we're going to think about real estate, not as two buckets, the houses we live in and the houses we invest in and, oh, I want to live here, but then I want my money to work for me over here in this sort of investment bucket. No, if we're going to think about it as one bucket of all investment, that the money has to work for you, work for you in the home you live in, your primary residence, which is going to be the vast majority of consumers are going to own one home, but it has to work for them. So it's really interesting that you're teasing out very wise, of course, teasing out this idea that the questions we should be asking is about financial stability or wealth generation, or again, really more simply, how is my money working for me in this home? Hey, everyone. It's Jake, director for the Business of Homes podcast. I hope you've been enjoying today's episode, starting when Nathan began his real estate career during the 08 recession, how Nathan created a sphere of influence, and how all forms of home ownership is an investment. When we return, Michael and Nathan take a deep dive into how to make sure an investment into a home appreciates in value over time. You don't want to miss it. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at The Business of Homes Pod, where you can interact with us and see some great bite-sized pieces from all of our episodes. For you listeners out there, did you know our entire podcast are filmed and are on our YouTube channel? Check it out next time you want to see our amazing guests tell their stories. And are you currently watching this episode in video format? Don't forget to follow us on your preferred audio streaming service to take us with you on the go. Lastly, do you have any feedback or want to suggest someone for the show? Email us at thebusinessofhomespodcast at gmail.com. Please enjoy the rest of today's episode with Nathan Weinberg. Let's get back to it. There's a conditioning that takes place when, and whether we want to admit it or not, we live in a caste system. It, it <laughs> exists here and it is what it is. Um, 
I'd love to believe that I could change that in my lifetime. I don't think I can. But what I do know is that I can change your cast. I can help you change. I can't. I can help you change your cast. I can help you decide that you want to live a different lifestyle um, because you make those fundamental investments in yourself. You say, I'm going to buy this, not because it's perfect for me today, but because in five years, 10 years, 15 years, it is going to be the giant leap I need to change things, to move into a different school district, to move to a different state, to sell it all and live on the beach, whatever it is that you want to do, that house does it for you. And I, there hasn't been a 20-year span in our nation's history where the value of real estate didn't start here and end up someplace north of that. It has not happened. Even during the Great Depression, um, even during the Great Recession in 2006, it doesn't happen. Now, did it make a dollar? Did it make $50,000? Did it make $100,000? I don't know. But it's always north of that. So from a perspective of safety, if we think of them in, as investments, people are like, well, I'll go buy a CD. My, my, my mother-in-law does this. My mother-in-law, I'm going to put all my money in a CD because it's safe. And the re-education around how it's not, how, how that money is actually losing money at that point, it's mm -hmm. losing value because yeah. the, the rate is so low. Um, is lost on her, not because she's not smart. It's just a generational thing. She's very smart. Um, ultimately, we need to help people realize that investments need to, like you said, work for you. And they need to work for you in the way of not diminishing their own value by sitting still. They need to just grow. So when you move into a neighborhood, what are things that you're doing to help improve the neighborhood? We can't be passive investors in our real estate. Hmm. We need to be active investors. What are the things we're doing to improve the value of our neighborhoods? Are we participating in um, neighborhood watch programs to help tease out crime? Are we uh, doing beautification projects? Are we investing in the local schools and the parks to help them be better? Even the simplicity of investing in neighbors yes. themselves creates a sense of community which attracts new blood that can help revitalize, you know, longstanding sort of fallow, you know, culture and neighborhoods. There, I read a book uh, a month and a half ago that really kind of changed my perspective in life. Um, uh, it's called Rent. And it's a, it was written by some journalists. Um, and what they followed, or no, I'm sorry, it's called Evicted, not Rent. It's called Evicted. If you don't pay um, your rent, you get you evicted. Yeah. But it was written by several journalists, and they were following the, they were they followed five groups of people that were evicted, um, in and around sort of the Baltimore area or mm -hmm. Milwaukee, excuse me, Milwaukee, um, about seven years ago, um, and what that process was like for each of them, and something that they discussed in in these chapters was really fundamentally interesting to me, which was, you know. The folks that were being evicted were being evicted because they were late on rent. Um, it was almost exclusively not because they didn't want to pay rent. There were lots of forces working against them. Um, and what happened when they were actually evicted was the neighborhood suffered because you had people that had institutional knowledge of all of these people and players in the neighborhood. And now they weren't there anymore. 
And so the steady source of watchful eyes, the calming presence for kids in the neighborhood is gone. It's fabric. It's right. And so you've changed the fabric of a neighborhood. Well, I think that that's, there's so many facets to real estate. That was really an interesting one. And it made, you made me think of it when you said that about investing in your neighbors. But this concept that we become accidental passive investors in our personal homes is something worth sort of stopping and thinking about for a second, because if we get right down to it, we live in a, in a world that is degrading. We are always moving towards a worse material reality. Wood rots, things age, and homes for the sort of the top layer of conversation have existed in an appreciable asset category. Yes. This is a home that appreciates in value. And then we relegate, you know, our cars and, you know, our boats and whatever else and you know, other consumer products into a depreciating asset category. And I think what we have accidentally done to our buyer population is we've given them permission to be sort of accidental passive investors in their personal properties because they think, oh, this thing appreciates, but let's get right down to it because you come from the construction world now, as do I, and we both know that homes don't just natively get better. In fact, they quite literally will be reclaimed by mother nature yeah. if you give it just a handful of years. And so this concept of an appreciable asset really has a great deal more to do with land and a lot less to do with structure. And structures will be replaced, some more than others. And we have to be very conscientious, this active element of being an investor in our own property. We have to be conscientious of how do we slow the degradation, maybe even down to a potential neutral point, to allow for the natural appreciation quality of, say, neighborhood or overall city fabric or simply just the land to sort of become that positive force for, you know, investment good so to speak. Mm -hmm. And when it gets right down to it, so many homeowners, renters, definitely, but I would even argue many professionals who occupy the real estate business don't fully yet understand all of how, say, a home works or what to spend your focus and your time on or how to avoid that natural chaos sort of degradation that is taking place in every single structure, every single home. And so it's, it's a good and interesting reminder that we can't be passive investors in our neighborhoods, in our city fabric, but most specifically our dwellings, mm -hmm. if we want it to be a truly appreciating asset. And there are not many stories, but occasionally one will come across on you know, the newspaper or the news or whatever about some large, beautiful structure that has gone to pot you know, and otherwise would need just a massive financial rescuing or maybe even to be raised and rebuilt. And at that point, we've sort of gone beyond that mm -hmm. point where, okay, maybe it would have been an appreciating asset, but if you look at the ledger over time, it had to take a big hit, you know, kind of mm -hmm. a thing. So it's interesting. You know, when I started building houses, um, and I, I still do this, we don't build a lot of homes anymore. We build more commercial stuff. But um, one of the things that I would do with first time home buyers about five days before they actually took the keys was I would do a really thorough walk through the house. And this was not to toot my horn. It was not designed to say, look at how great I did with this, because I never swung a hammer, right? I never, I was not the one who actually built your home. I developed it, 
I came up with the plans for it. I sourced the subcontractors for it. I did all of those things, but I never swung a hammer. So I can't take credit for physically building your house. But what I can do is protect your, your investment for you, help you protect your investment. So we would go through things. We would talk about uh, cleaning. How do we clean hardwood floors to keep them from falling apart? How do we, how and when should we replace air filters in HVAC systems? And what kind of air filters should we buy? Um, we talk about light bulbs. What's the, what's the cost benefit of the different, at the time, the different kinds of light bulbs that were out there? Now it's all LED, which is great. Um, or not. I, we're not here to talk about that. Um, we would talk about um, concrete and maintaining concrete and what cracks mean and all the things that a home inspector talks about. But we would talk about them in terms of what are the general maintenance items you need? So what are the actual things that you should be doing to your house on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, five-yearly basis um, to do exactly what you just said, which is to protect it from Mother Nature saying, they don't care about it. I would like to have it back. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, some of our listeners here uh, might have had a similar upbringing to me where they had a father or a grandfather that when you first started driving a vehicle would tell you, oh, when it knocks like that, it means this. Or when it bumps or hums like that, or when the brakes squeak, it means this. There was those that went before us who learned through many, many years of maybe trial and error uh, or learned from somebody else how to interpret the little signs that tell us that our asset is struggling in need of repair or maintenance or love or whatever. And so I love this idea of this walkthrough. Of course, nobody listening here is going to be stranger to the walkthrough right before you take a possession of a home. But let it be said, not all walkthroughs are the, made no, the, made the same. Close. <laughs> and so you're getting into almost this homeowner education piece. And so I kind of zoom out and I think about it. And I think, well, hold on. I don't think this is in the large scale. I don't think this is happening almost at all. Oh, not at the not at builder, yeah. new construction level. Certainly not at the resale of an existing home. You know, I don't think I've heard very many real estate agents talk about that this is a part of their process. And that may be an education issue. Um, for them too. They don't know it. For them too. Maybe they don't yeah. know it. But this idea that we need to be teaching the next generation of owners, heck, the current generation of owners about, well, what does it do when there's a knocking sound or there's a hum or a, a squeal? What does it mean? Oh, if you put a ding in your wall, how do you repair it or who do you call? Oh, if you find a shingle on your front lawn, don't just put it in the trash. That came from your roof, bro. That means something's wrong. That's your version of a knocking engine, you know, or how do I, what if I spill a glass of water on my hardwoods versus what if I spill 50 gallons of water on my hardwoods? What do I do? And this level of education, I mean, even right now, while I'm thinking about it, appears to be a major gap in the market. And someone listening here should take this idea, run with it and make it almost the focal point of your real estate agent practice and your business. because. That is our current sort of more millennial and Gen Z buyers that are coming down the line are hungry for that. You know, grandpa and grandma from the great generation, they knew how to do all that stuff. You know, maybe the boomers did, maybe they didn't, but now an increasingly younger buyer is hungry for that information and hungry for that teaching. And it's wise, especially if you're producing homes like you were and are, you know, where you have a vested interest in seeing that home survive. It has your yeah. name on it. Um, that's very smart. And that education, as you were maybe hinting at, 
isn't solely relegated to owners or renters, maybe the other professionals also need that education. They absolutely need it. And to, so I'll, I, I will, I'll self promote for a second. So, um, but <laughs> it's, allowed. it's internally at our brokerage right now. I'm hoping to, to grow it, but I built a class that I teach to our agents twice a year. Um, and I call it the parts and pieces class. And so what we do is we pick a house. I pick a house. Sometimes it's a newer home. Usually it's an older home. Um, and we meet that day in that house. We get permission to do this. Um, and we talk about all of the parts and pieces of that house. What do they do? What is the relevant history of those things? Um, what are the maintenance concerns? What are the things that we can do to upgrade that have real tangible value? We do this in about two hour block of time. It's not nearly enough, but it is a start and it gives realtors the fundamental tools. It's the layup that I was talking about before we got started, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's the fundamentals that you need to be a good steward of your client's best interests. Because if you can't do that, then all you're doing is selling them a used car and it's going to break. It's going to fall apart and you will be the used car salesman. But if you can give them not just the keys to a house, but the way to keep those keys working in the lock, the way to keep the air conditioning working, to the way to keep your floors in good shape and to know when there's a big crack in your wall that's greater than a, you know, a quarter inch, that it's something that you should be paying attention to. Mm -hmm. um, if you can do that, then you'll make clients for life number one, which is what every realtor should be trying to do, um, you will start having a greater interest in your craft, which has a really incredible history. And if realtors do not understand the history of real estate and real estate sales, they need to start understanding it because there's some really fascinating people have been selling real estate for thousands of years. It's, I mean, we used to trade cows. They still do. You go to rural counties, people will trade farm equipment and cattle and livestock for real estate all the time. And it's totally legal because the contract's written in such a way that it makes it so, right? Yeah, cows are worth like thousands of dollars. Absolutely, and they're <laughs> delicious. So why wouldn't you? Um, I do believe that what you said is right. Education is so important. It starts with the realtor and the realtor, just like your dad did, passes it on to their client. Mm. And their client then can pass it on to their progeny or whoever else they come in contact with that they want to have a great party anecdote or something else yeah. they can share that it will change the value of real estate in a good way you're so right and honestly please anyone listening here steal this idea <laughs> and you have my permission to not give it all away at one time you won't be able to no doubt no way. but if you're providing a layer of education for you know, this client of yours, feel free to, in a very selfish business sort of way, bake in future opportunity for you to be interacting with these people. Again, you always want to be thinking about farming the sphere. And so if you're saying to someone here, let me help educate you on ownership or, you know, uh, tricks of the trade or whatever, you can also in the same breath be saying, but look, you're not going to remember it all. And please let me be a resource to you. More agents viewing themselves as a, a resource for that future buyer or that future seller, you know, is going to put them back 
calling you, asking for referrals, and it's going to put you always making sure that your Rolodex um, is at tip-top shape so that you can be giving out the best referrals. It can be self-interested in the way that you're perpetuating your business while totally still be helping the client. Those things are not mutually exclusive. Yeah. I think that there's a number of your listeners who probably are going to DM you about what is a Rolodex. Um, but I do like that that word is still so ubiquitous that people like use it still. Man, what a really great conversation about real estate investing. Uh, thank you, Nathan, for this great part one. And I hope that you guys listening will subscribe because we've got a great part two coming up. Hey everyone, Jake again, director for the Business of Homes podcast. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. A huge thank you to Nathan Weinberg for being a part of the podcast. And remember, this is only part one, so check back in two weeks for part two. Go follow him on Instagram at Nathan Weinberg Broker and let him know how much you enjoyed their story. Don't forget to subscribe on your preferred listening platform and make sure to follow us on Instagram as well at the Business of Homes Pod. Do you have any feedback or want to suggest someone for the show? Email us at thebusinessofhomespodcast at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you soon.